Well, it was uh, way back in August during our sermon series through the life of David that we, we were last uh, in the life of David. That was back in August. It seems more recent than that. <laughs> but I looked it up, and it was on August 18th that we took a pause uh, from our study through the life of David. And I was really grateful at that time to take a break from David. I'll confess that to you. Um, mostly, I was enjoying it, and I've been looking forward to getting back into it. I think it's rich and full of meaningful things. I think it's where God wants us to be. But the reason why I was glad to take a pause when we did is because I knew the next chapter on the list was chapter 26 of 1 Samuel. And I did not want to preach 1 Samuel 26, not because it's difficult or confusing or any of that, but because it was identical to chapter 24 that we had just studied two weeks before. <laughs> and I thought, what am I going to do with a chapter that is almost word for word the same? Now, it's been a while. It's been over four months since we were in that story. And so I was tempted just to dust off my first Samuel 24 sermon and do it again. <laughs> I could have done no work this week. It would have been great. But I didn't do that. It has been a while, though, and so just to refresh our memories, let me recap the events of chapter 24 briefly. You may not remember. I'm sure you guys memorized my sermons, carry them around with you, but let me revisit it just in case some of you weren't here. David and some of his men, as this is 1 Samuel 24 now, were hiding in the back of a cave in the wilderness oasis of Engedi. And they were hiding, of course, from jealous King Saul, who imagines that David is a threat to his throne. And Saul comes riding up through the canyon at the head of 3,000 select men. And David and his men, they hide in the back of the cave, probably hoping that Saul and his entourage would pass by and then they could come back in. But probably to their horror, the column stops in front of the mouth of the cave. Saul has to go to the bathroom, and he does. He goes down into the cave all by himself, as you can imagine he would, and all alone he starts to do what you do. But unbeknownst to him, this sparks a fierce debate in the dark recesses of the cave. The debate is between David and his men. His men say, my goodness, David, God has given him into your hand. He's vulnerable. He's alone. We're armed to the teeth. This is clearly from the hand of God that we should kill the man who's been hunting your life. David disagrees with them. David doesn't see it that way. So he creeps up on Saul, who is seated on the throne, as it were, but not with the intent of killing him. In the darkness, he quietly cuts a corner off Saul's royal robe and then retreats before he can be seen. And once Saul exits the cave and returns to his men, David comes out of the cave behind him and he calls out to Saul. He holds up the ripped, cut of, corner of his robe and said, See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. 
I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand will not be against you. That was what we studied back on August 11th in 1 Samuel 24. And we learned a lot of things from David's example in that chapter. For starters, David helped us to see what it looks like to forgive someone who is unrepentant about the evil things they have done and who are even now looking for more opportunities to sin against us. David had found such a person in Saul. Maybe you have such a person in your life. You know the biblical command to forgive them. But what do you, how do you forgive someone who is actively trying to harm you? Well, we see that David did not return evil for evil. When given an opportunity, he did not seek to give Saul a taste of his own medicine. However, David does not turn a blind eye to Saul's behavior either. He said to Saul, may the Lord judge between me and you. And then he says this, don't lose this. May the Lord avenge me against you. <laughs> In other words, he has some opinions about the wrongness of what Saul is doing. But he just says, may God vindicate my innocence and hold you accountable for your wickedness. Sometimes in the Christian life, forgiveness will involve not so much a dropping of the matter as a handing over of the matter into the hands of God. David divests himself of a toxic burden, all that bitterness and rage, by handing Saul over to a righteous God who commands us in his word to never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So that was one thing we learned about. How do we forgive somebody who's unrepentant and actively trying to harm us? However, I think the biggest takeaway was not that David was innocent of a grasping desire both for the place of Saul, but that he was innocent of a grasping desire for the place of God. We talked about this at length on that morning. You see, it was a grasping desire for the place of God that caused Saul to have the kingship torn from him in the first place. God had given Saul a command, which Saul had heard and understood, but he replaced God's command with his own judgments. God's will and God's desire with his own will, his own desire. So it is significant to note that David, at least for his part, apparently thought that if he killed Saul while he was going to the bathroom in that cave, would have represented a seizure of God's place as judge. It says in verse 12, May the Lord judge between me and you. And then again in verse 15 he says, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. In other words, David says, God may kill you. Or maybe he's even saying, God should kill you. But it will not be by my hand. This is what he says. If he had acted on the advice of his men and killed Saul, he would have been doing more than seizing the throne of Saul. He would have been seizing the place of God by acting as, his, as Saul's judge. And again, Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, 
but leave room for the wrath of God. In other words, the evil things that Saul has been doing. God is not calling David to let the matter drop exactly, but he's not to carry it around either. David hands it off to God, and he's freed of it. He demonstrates for us what it looks like to rest in God's timing and his perfect judgments. Taking our own revenge, getting a little taste of wrath now, is always a seizing of God's place as judge. So that was the lesson in 1 Samuel 24, which I didn't need to repeat. You guys all remember that, right? <laughs> Encourage your pastor to go, yep, uh-huh. We tied that up in a neat little bow on August 11th and moved on. But here's the thing. We moved on, but in his word, God does not. In fact, in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 25, we saw that all that we admired about David in 1 Samuel 24, he fails to live up to in the very next chapter. <laughs> he handles the dealing with Nabal exactly the opposite of how he dealt with Saul. He flies to a rage. He encourages men to go kill him and everybody in his household over an insult. He's very quick to step into the place of judge. And so we had to wrestle with the imperfection of David. And we talked about how even our great heroes of the faith are fallen human beings made of dust, as it were. We came to grips with that. And then, and then in our chapter for this morning, chapter 26, we come to a story that is so similar to chapter 24 that in places they are even word for word the same. And this is why I didn't want to preach on it back then. And in fact, I thought about skipping it even this week, just moving on to chapter 27, reasoning we already covered this. But if I did that, God called me out in my heart, I would, replace, I would be seizing the place of God. <laughs> I would not be allowing him to speak through his word in a verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I would just be saying, God, I like what you did in the Bible, but chapter 26, we don't need that. And I can't do that. You wouldn't be served well if I did. So we come to chapter 26, and we're going to study this one now. Not in a verse-by-verse -verse kind of way. It's too long to, to break out in that kind of a way. But here I'll give you the flyover. Saul once again comes hunting for David's life. David, in chapter 26, will once again sneak up on Saul when he is vulnerable and unaware of David's presence. This time, rather than going to the bathroom, Saul falls asleep. The whole camp does. Once again, one of David's men, a man named Abishai, will earnestly make the argument that God has delivered Saul into his hands for the purpose of killing him. Abishai will say, I'll stick him to the ground with a spear and I won't have to do it twice. And, but once again, rather than killing Saul, David will take items from Saul's person that prove that he got close enough to kill him but did not. This time he's going to take Saul's spear and his water jar from right by his head. As Saul's sleeping there on the ground, you can imagine the king, he's got a spear stuck in the ground in his water bottle. Once again, after retreating, David will call out to Saul from a distance and hold up the items as proof of his innocence and goodwill. And once again, David calls on God to judge between them. And once again, Saul will cry crocodile tears, confess that he's been wrong, that he's been treating David poorly, and tell David that he can come home and that everything will be all right from now on. 
That's chapter 26. Been there, done that, <laughs> right? So as I was preparing this past week, I started by praying that God would show me how these two accounts differ from each other. That was my starting place, my starting assumption. I said, God, I don't see it, but what, is there some different shade of meaning between these two stories? Is there something new or significant to see here to suss out? But the more I read and studied, the more I kept seeing how similar they were, not how different from each other they were. And really when I thought about it, this repetition is in keeping with how God speaks to us throughout his word. Do you remember how Joseph had duplicate dreams with one and the same meaning? Pharaoh did too. Jesus told the parable of the lost, king, lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost prodigal son all in a row to communicate the same singular truth. On two separate occasions, women washed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. On two separate occasions, Jesus fed large crowds with an inadequate small amount of food. We have the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all telling the same basic story. Paul's conversion to Christianity is described for us in Acts 9, and then again in much the same detail in Acts 22. Often the Bible quotes itself, repeating the same exact phrases over and over again. The Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament 250 times. The great themes and lessons of the Bible are revisited and reinforced in lots of different stories and scriptures with abundant repetition. We also see cautionary tales and patterns of sin repeat over and over again in the lives of people profiled in the Bible. On two separate occasions, Abraham lied telling kings that Sarah was his sister rather than his wife. Out of fear, Peter denied any association with Jesus three times. And then in Galatians 2, we're told that because he feared men who had come from Jerusalem, he denied any association with the Galatian Christians. The book of Judges is a merry-go-round of repetition as Israel descends into sin and idolatry over and over and over again, only to be saved and rescued each time by a gracious God, but once they've been helped, they forget God, and round and round and round we go. Judges is a very repetitious book. Some of you maybe have started your year with an intention to read through the Bible in a year, and many a well-intentioned attempt to read through the Bible has died in the most repetitious book, Leviticus. It just repeats the same stuff over and over and over again. I could go on and on. Our God is a repetitious God. But you get the point. The redundancy we see in 1 Samuel 24 and 26 is not an isolated instance of God repeating himself. It's how he talks to us. And that's something to wrestle with and think about a little bit this morning. I, I heard once the story of a young pastor at a small country church. He was right out of seminary. And he went to this church and they hired him kind of 
with a question mark. Is he going to work out? You know, when you hire somebody new and inexperienced, you're just not sure what kind of pastor they're going to be. So the whole town turned out to hear his first sermon. And he gave one humdinger of a sermon. I mean, people were crying. It was amazing. And when it was all over, everybody shook his hands and said, my goodness, we are so glad you came to be our pastor. Well, the next Sunday, they came back. We want to see what he can do to follow up that last sermon. And he gave the exact same sermon again. That was kind of weird, but he's new. Let's give him a break. (laughs) Well, the next Sunday, he came and gave the exact same sermon. And that was too much. One of the deacons took him aside afterwards and said, Son, I'm, I don't know what they taught you in seminary, but here we expect you to preach a new sermon every week. And he said, Well, I'll stop preaching that sermon when you start living it. <laughs> so many things to say. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> that was some other preacher. But I do think there's point to the repetition in the Bible. I wonder if God would, would say much the same to us. I think he repeats himself so that we would hear it with greater clarity. We would understand the importance of it. One of the things I find most interesting about this account in chapter 26 is that at this point in the story, absolutely nobody behaves in ways that are surprising. There are no surprises in chapter 26 whatsoever. The chapter opens by telling us about these, this group of people called the Ziphites. We heard about them back in our study of chapter 23. They come to Saul to inform him that David was hiding out in their territory. And back in 23, we read the same. They come to Saul in 23.19. We read this. Is not David hiding among the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hakalah? And then at the beginning of this chapter, they come to Saul and they say, is, David, is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah? The Ziphites do not surprise us. This is who they are. This is a pattern of how they behave at this point. Does anything Saul does in 1 Samuel 26 surprise us at this point in our study through the life of David? If you've been with us throughout our study so far, you would have to agree that nothing he does in chapter 26 is out of character or surprising in any way. The prophet Samuel has called out Saul. Jonathan, his own son, has called him out. David has called him out. And every time he gets called out, Saul has made a show of regret for the way he has acted, only to then reverse course and go right back to his evil ways. Everything Saul does is 100% part of a well-established pattern at this time, and we're not surprised. David's men. Despite being rebuked by David in chapter 24 for their desire to kill Saul, here in chapter 26, we see that they have not changed their thinking one bit. We're not surprised, therefore, that Abishai recommends spearing Saul as he sleeps because we've already been introduced to these guys, and we know how they think. And so when opportunity comes knocking again in chapter 26, we're not surprised by what Abishai recommends to David. This is just a pattern at this point. This is how they act and how they think. David, for his part, David's conduct really doesn't surprise us either, does it? 
We've gotten to know this guy pretty well by this time. And although we've seen that he is a flawed sinner, just like any of us, we've also become accustomed to seeing him do daredevil things, like sneaking into the middle of an armed camp. And in all his dealings with Saul, he has consistently behaved in an honorable, long-suffering, high-minded, gracious, and generous way toward him. We've seen time and time again his almost reflexive trust in God and his desire to behave in ways that are pleasing to his God. So again, in chapter 26, we see nothing new. Nobody surprises us. For better or for worse, certain patterns of thinking, speaking, and behaving have emerged. We've encountered all the players before, and everyone is behaving in ways that are well-established and predictable. In his famous book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Sean Covey says, we become what we repeatedly do. And we have seen and know the character of all the players involved based on what we have seen them repeatedly do at this point. Saul, for his part, after he's called out by David, he says this in verse 21 of chapter 26. Behold, I have acted foolishly. Well, in Proverbs 26, 11, it says this about fools. It says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. In other words, being foolish is a habitual pattern of practice in your life. 2 Peter 2, 22 says this, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns wallowing in the mire. Now, to be sure, we also have examples in the Bible of God's people making a righteous habit. Daniel 6.10, we know from that story that Daniel made a habit known even to his enemies, that he prayed three times a day. In Luke 4.16, we're told that Jesus, when he got to town, went to the synagogue to worship, as was his habit. In Hebrews 10.25, we're exhorted not to forget the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. The Bible calls us to be habitual in our practices of righteousness and warns us against developing habits, patterns of unrighteousness. And all of this brings us to kind of an uncomfortable question. Chapter 26 is monotonous, and it's tiring because everybody has settled into a rut. Or in David's place, he's found a groove. Perhaps, a good way, a good kind of a rut. But what about us? What about me? What well-established patterns, what well-worn paths exist in your mind, in your mode of living, thought and behavior? What have you made habitual in your life? For good or for bad, where do those well-worn paths lead? The awful destructiveness of sin and the glorious beauty of righteousness are both magnified and made apparent when they become the stuff of habit. If some group of people, years and years from now, were studying your life, as we have been studying David's, and they came to the chapter 26 of your story, would they find anything surprising or new 
at the beginning of 2020. What's new? It's a question we ask sometimes when we meet each other. What's new by you? (laughs) And I think when I read chapter 26 and I see all these guys who have just settled into a sinful rut, they've made their peace with certain ways of thinking and doing. How many times will Saul play this game of being called out and seeing the wrongness of his ways and then really just go back to the mud like a sow that's been washed? Am I doing that? Does that exist in my life? Of course, there are areas where I'm prone to sin, as are you, as are all fallen human beings. But how many times will God call me out and me never really take seriously my calling before the Lord to do violence against that sin, to put it to death, to establish a new pattern of righteousness? And even if today you are relatively feeling good about your walk with the Lord. We know from Scripture that Christianity is never about reaching a plateau where you just coast. It is a life of striving, isn't it? If we stop fighting, we go backwards, just like running up on an escalator that's going down. I suppose I would be very surprised if years and years from now anyone was interested in studying our lives. But it would not surprise me one bit to learn that right now, today, there are people who are making a study of your life. They're looking on with interest. Your parents, your children and grandchildren, your spouse, your in-laws, your church family, your boss, your employees, your classmates, co-workers, not to mention your God. For good or bad, they all see you and they see certain habitual patterns in the way you are living and thinking and talking and relating to others. Do you make God visible, brothers and sisters? Do I? In my home, in my neighborhood, the jokes I tell, I believe that people are very intuitive and they will have a sense of whether God is your pleasure or if pleasure is your God. They have come to expect intuitively honesty or dishonesty from you, humility or arrogance. They have formed opinions about how self-controlled, upright, and godly you are. They feel inside a sense of if you are a self-interested person or a true friend, if you tend to gossip, or if you can be trusted to protect the dignity of others, if you are the same lover of righteousness when you are alone as when you are with others. Those who know us well have an opinion on these things about us. But don't despair. I don't mean to paint this in a dark, hopeless, fatalistic way, as though you've made your bed and now you've got to lie in it, as though you come to a road next to a, a sign next to a country road that says, choose your rut carefully, you'll be in it for the next six miles. (laughs) That's not true. That's not the spirit of what the Bible says to us. 
The Bible is not a dark, hopeless, fatalistic book. It is a hope-filled book about how the Holy Spirit gives followers of Jesus the capacity to change and be transformed. We are made new. Patterns of righteousness will be rewarded, and patterns of sin can be defeated, even though they do not go unnoticed. And that's the good, hopeful message of the Bible. We come to chapter 26, and we see guys that are stuck in a rut of doing and thinking that's miserable. Saul just repeats over and over again the same sin. It's a merry-go-round of disappointment. And I just think that this is a very timely word from the Bible as we find ourselves at the beginning of a new year. Jeremiah 6.16, years ago a pastor challenged me to commit this to memory, says, Thus says the Lord, stand by the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. The Bible does not really present human beings as being locked in in a doomed kind of way to what they're doing. You can change today. And I'm willing bet to all of us, to a certain extent, have settled into a rut of some point, at some, at some point or of some kind this morning. There are many crossroads in life that we come to. And New Year's strikes me as sort of a little crossroads moment where the meandering path of your life, all the days that have come before, bring us to this new day, this new turning of the calendar. And we pause alongside the trail of our life's journey and consider the way forward. God is truly beckoning you this morning to stand by the crossroads and look. Is the direction in which I'm traveling a good one? Is it bringing rest to my soul? This road I'm on, where does it lead? Is it a dead end? Am I wasting my life? Do I need to make a U-turn? Is the way upon which you've been traveling, is it broad and crowded with fools who don't seem a bit concerned with where their road ends up? Are you filled with road rage as you travel? Are you lost and in need of a map? Or is the road you're on straight, narrow, and clearly marked? Maybe as you look back over the past year, you realize that at some point along the way, you paused in your striving, and instead of passing through this world as a pilgrim and a sojourner, you've just sort of bivouacked next to the trail. And instead of moving on, you're settling down and adopting the customs and concerns of the locals. I think we see this in the lives of the people in chapter 26, by the way. There's no changing. There's no moving. There's no transformation. There's just the same. Maybe the gentle call to come out to the crossroads and looks this morning is an invitation to get off our spiritual behinds, break camp, and renew the journey to heaven with vigor and resolve. Chapter 26 calls us to look at the patterns that are in evidence in our lives. Life is often repetitious. 
David knows to what to expect from Saul. And similarly, we keep meeting the same kind of people. We feel the same kind of fears. We experience the same kind of temptations. But in becoming a follower of Jesus, Christians become wonderfully unpredictable in the way they respond to these things. We keep meeting the same kind of people, but are we changing? We keep feeling the same kind of fears, but are we growing in a deepening trust in God that conquers them? We keep experiencing the same kind of temptations, but are we saying no more and more? Or are we, like Saul, kind of predictable? Pushovers. We become transformed by the renewing of our mind. And then by degrees, we no longer conform to the patterns of this fallen world. Living for Jesus in the midst of a fallen world means that all of your movement towards Christ and Christ's likeness will be opposed strongly by a current running in the opposite direction. Even now, brothers and sisters, the prevailing current of the culture and our own sin nature is pulling strongly at our hearts and minds. There is a strong downward pull to these days that we are living in. And again, if we ever stop striving, that current pulls us away from where we want to go. Holiness and God's power unto godliness in a Christian life is not that we are perfect, but that we are actively, intentionally striving against the strong downward pull of these days. And real quick, we don't have much time here in closing, but I don't want to just leave with a general exhortation. (laughs) Sometimes I feel like at the end of sermons, I run the risk of just saying, be better. (laughs) And it's not very helpful, right? Like, I've never really had anybody say that to me, but that's not a very helpful exhortation. Just like, come on, you got to do better. I think God wants to help us be transformed, obviously. And I think we're silly to think that we can enjoy much transformation in our lives without being people of the book. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says that all scripture is God-breathed and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. If you're stuck in a rut spiritually today, I don't think there's any way to get out of that rut without being taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained. And that comes from the Word of God. When it says in Romans 12, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that we would no longer conform to the patterns of this world. So much of our falling into ruts is the conforming to the patterns of the world. And getting out of that rut comes from being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that comes by being in God's Word. I plead with you, fellow Christians, in 2020, resolve, more than losing weight, more than getting to the gym once a week or whatever, more than certain occupational or financial goals, resolve in the new year to get into God's Word and remain there. Develop a pattern of giving God opportunity to speak into your lives. Second, pray about it. 
if we know anything about David, who stands out in chapter 26 as a man who has developed good patterns, good habits, we know from the Psalms about David's prayer life, and he is a man who has raw, honest conversations with God regularly. I think the way we have conversations with God is he speaks to us through his word and we breathe back prayer to him. Breathe in the word, breathe out prayer. This is what conversation with God looks like. So we begin with prayer in God's word. We can ask for help in the moment. If over the course of our time together this morning, God has convicted you about an area in your life where you have fallen into patterns that are displeasing to him, when you find yourself in the moment of temptations, and the moment of temptation, you can call out for help. God calls us to turn to him when we are weak, when our defenses are down, when we long to give in. He waits for us to call to him. He reminds us that his power is perfect when we admit our weaknesses. God enjoys giving wisdom to those who ask, James 1.5. We are to turn our eyes to him in our weakest moments and seek his deliverance. When you find yourself in the moment of temptation, when Saul is right there in your face and you want to give it to him, call out and ask for help. I wish I had more time to explore this, but it is so important not just to say no to things, but to replace your temptations with a deeper joy. Uh, for example, if... I realize that my problem is hamburgers and ice cream, <laughs> right? It's a, it's, a, it's a joyless thing just to go the rest of my life without hamburgers and ice cream. But it becomes very joyous when I enjoy something else more. For example, I can say, I really want to eat hamburgers and ice cream right now, but I think I'll go for a walk instead. I love taking walks. That's good. I think if we don't replace our love for sin with a love, a deeper love for something else, eventually it will just come back. It will overrun our defenses. Remember that sin and God lead you by your desires. And we are designed by our creator to be people who run after happiness. The great tragedy of human beings is that they've looked for happiness in things other than God and righteousness. So one of the keys to defeating sin in our life, defeating those ruts of habitual sin, is to replace our love for sin with a deeper joy in something concrete, specific in God. And lastly, and this is the most difficult, tell a friend. Whatever your rut is, whatever your thing is that you're struggling with this year, tell a friend about that struggle. Choose a Christian brother or sister who has proven themselves uh, faithful, that they handle information with discretion and grace, that they love you, and let them know about what you are trying to accomplish spiritually this year so that they can hold you accountable and pray for you. And you can have somebody with whom to share those amazing stories of how God has given you what you needed to see it through. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, we are confronted by unsurprising people who have settled into patterns. There's repetition here. And Father, as we look over our own lives, we see a lot of rep repetition, some good and some bad. 
There are things we do habitually to your glory. And there are things we do habitually to our own shame. Father, one thing's for sure. We can't follow you and stay where we are. You're on the move. You're a God who transforms, who calls us to strive and grow. And Father, if we find ourselves in a rut where we're just kind of treading water, or maybe we've developed patterns in our lives of disobedience, hidden shameful things, Father, I ask, Lord, that you would give us the capacity through your Holy Spirit to move beyond that this year. Father, this world is repetitious, but Father, by your Holy Spirit, our response to it can change. And Father, I pray for those that are looking on. They would see and be challenged by your presence in the lives of the people here at State Road. Father, maybe there's a child or a spouse or a parent or a co-worker that's been watching us for some time, and maybe the sudden appearance of a sincere change would be the thing that makes them see you in our lives. Father, I delight to think of how you might use this challenge, and I pray, Lord, that you would not let this conversation drop at the end of this service. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.